Section 13 of The Oakdale Affair by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. I think, said Bridge, that we will just stay where we are until after dark. We haven't passed or seen a human being since we left the cabin. No one can know that we are here, and if we stay here until late tonight we should be able to pass around Payson unseen and reach the wood to the south of town. If we do not meet anyone tonight we'll stop them and inquire the way to Oakdale. That'll throw them off the track. The others acquiesced in his suggestion, but there were queries about the food to be answered. It seemed that all were hungry and that the bear was ravenous. What does he eat? Bridge asked of Giava. Most anything, replied the girl. He like garbage fine. Often I take him into town late, very late at night, and he eats wheel. I do that to-night. Beppo, he got to be fed or he eat Giava. I go feed Beppo. You go get food for us. Then we all meet at Edge of Wood, just other side town, near Old Mill. During the remainder of the afternoon, and well after dark, the party remained hidden in the willows. Then Giova started out with Beppo in search of garbage cans. Bridge bent his steps toward a small store upon the outskirts of town, where food could be purchased, the Oskaloosa kid having donated a ten-dollar bill for the stocking of the commissariat, and the youth and the girl made their way around the south end of the town toward the meeting-place beside the old mill. As Bridge moved through the quiet road at the outskirts of the little town, he let his mind revert to the events of the past twenty-four hours, and as he pondered each happening since he met the youth in the dark of the storm the preceding night, he asked himself why he had cast his lot with these strangers. In his years of vagabondage Bridge had never crossed that invisible line which separates honest men from thieves and murderers, and which, once crossed, may never be recrossed. Chance and necessity had thrown him often among such men and women, but never had he been of them. The police of more than one city knew Bridge. They knew him, though, as a character and not as a criminal. A dozen times he had been arraigned upon suspicion, but as many times had he been released with a clean bill of morals until of late Bridge had become almost immune from arrest. The police who knew him knew that he was straight, and they knew, too, that he would give no information against another man. For this they admired him, as did the majority of the criminals with whom he had come in contact during his rovings. The present crisis, however, appeared most unpromising to Bridge. Grave crimes had been committed in Oakdale, and here was Bridge conniving in the escape of at least two people who might readily be under police suspicion. It was difficult for the man to bring himself to believe that either the youth or the girl was in any way actually responsible for either of the murders. Yet it appeared that the latter had been present when a murder was committed, and now, by attempting to elude the police, had become an accessory after the fact, since she possessed knowledge of the identity of the actual murderer while the boy, by his own admission, had committed a burglary. Bridge shook his head wearily. Was he not himself an accessory after the fact in the matter of two crimes, at least? These new friends, it seemed, were about to topple him into the abyss which he had studiously avoided for so long a time. But why should he permit it? What were they to him? A freight train was puffing into the siding at the Payson station, Bridge could hear the complaining brakes a mile away. 
it would be easy to leave the town and his dangerous companions far behind him. But even as the thought forced its way into his mind, another obtruded itself to shoulder aside the first. It was recollection of the boy's words. Oh, Bridge, I don't want to leave you, ever. I couldn't do it, used Bridge. I don't know just why, but I couldn't. That kid has certainly got me. The first thing someone knows, I'll be starting a foundling's home. There is no question but that I am the soft mark, and I wonder why it is, why a kid I never saw before last night has a stranglehold on my heart that I can't shake loose, and don't want to. Now if it was a girl, I could understand it. Bridge stopped suddenly in the middle of the road. From his attitude he might have been startled either by a surprising noise or by a surprising thought. For a minute he stood motionless. Then he shook his head again and proceeded along his way toward the little store. Evidently, if he had heard anything, he was assured that it constituted no menace. As he entered the store to make his purchase, a fox-eyed man saw him and stepped quickly behind the huge stove which had not as yet been taken down for the summer. Bridge made his purchases, the volume of which required a large gunny-sack for transportation and while he was thus occupied the fox-eyed man clung to his coin of vantage, himself unnoticed by the purchaser. When Bridge departed, the other followed him, keeping in the shadow of the trees which bordered the street. Around the edge of town and down a road which led southward, the two went until Bridge passed through a broken fence and halted beside an abandoned mill. The watcher saw his quarry set down his burden seat himself beside it and proceed to roll a cigarette. Then he faded away in darkness, and Bridge was alone. Five or ten minutes later two slender figures appeared dimly out of the north. They approached timidly, stopping often, and looking first this way and then that, and always listening. When they arrived opposite the mill, Bridge saw them and gave a low whistle. Immediately the two passed through the fence and approached him. "'My!' exclaimed one. I thought we never would get here, but we didn't see a soul on the road. Where is Java? She hadn't come yet, replied Bridge, and she may not. I don't see how a girl can browse around town like this with a big bear at night and not be seen, and if she is seen she'll be followed. It would be too much of a treat for the rubes ever to be passed up, and if she's followed she won't come here. At least I hope she won't. What's that? exclaimed the Oskaloosa kid. Each stood in silence, listening. The girl shuddered. "'Even now that I know what it is, it makes me creep,' she whispered, as the faint clanking of a distant chain came to their ears. "'We ought to be used to it by this time, Miss Prim,' said Bridge. "'We heard it all last night, and a good part of today.' The girl made no comment upon the use of the name which he had applied to her, and in the darkness he could not see her features nor did he see the odd expression upon the boy's face as he heard the name addressed to her. Was he thinking of the nocturnal raid he so recently had made upon the boudoir of Miss Abigail Prim? Was he pondering the fact that his pockets bulged to the stolen belongings of that young lady? But whatever was passing in his mind he permitted none of it to pass his lips. As the three stood waiting in silence, Java came presently among them, the beast Beppo lumbering awkwardly at her side. "'Did he find anything to eat?' asked the man. "'Oh, yes!' exclaimed Java. "'He feel up now. That make him better nature. Beppo not so ugly now.' "'Well, I'm glad of that,' said Bridge. 
I haven't been looking forward much to his company through the woods tonight, especially while he was hungry. Java laughed a low, musical little laugh. I don't think he hurt you anyway, she said. Now he know you my friend. I hope you're quite correct in your surmise, replied Bridge. But even so, I'm not taking any chances. Willie Case had been taken to Payson to testify before the coroner's jury investigating the death of Java's father, and with the dollar which the Oskaloosa kid had given him in the morning, burning in his pocket, had proceeded to indulge in an orgy of dissipation the moment that he had been freed from the inquest. Ice cream, red pop, peanuts, candy, and soda water may have diminished his appetite, but not his pride and self-satisfaction as he sat alone and by night for the first time in a public eating place. Willie was now a man of the world, a bon vivant, and as he ordered ham and eggs from the pretty waitress of the elite restaurant on Broadway, but at heart he was not happy, for never before had he realized what a great proportion of his anatomy was made up of hands and feet. As he glanced fearfully at the former, silhouetted against the white of the tablecloth, he flushed scarlet, assured as he was that the waitress who had just turned away toward the kitchen with his order was convulsed with laughter, and that every other eye in the establishment was glued upon him. To assume an air of nonchalance and thereby impress and disarm his critics, Willie reached for a toothpick in the little glass holder near the center of the table and upset the sugar bowl. Immediately Willie snatched back the offending hand and glared ferociously at the ceiling. He could feel the roots of his hair being consumed in the heat of his skin. A quick side glance that required all his willpower to consummate showed him that no one appeared to have noticed his faux pas, and Willie was again slowly returning to normal, when the proprietor of the restaurant came up from behind and asked him to remove his hat. Never had Willie Case spent so frightful a half-hour as that within the brilliant interior of the elite restaurant. Twenty-three minutes of this eternity was consumed in waiting for his order to be served, and seven minutes in disposing of the meal and paying his check. Willie's method of eating was in itself a sermon on efficiency. There was no lost motion, no waste of time. He placed his mouth within two inches of his plate after cutting his ham and eggs into pieces of a size that would permit each mouthful to enter without wedging. Then he mixed his mashed potatoes in with the result— and working his knife and fork alternately with bewildering rapidity, shot a continuous stream of food into his gaping maw. In addition to the meat and potatoes, there was one vegetable in a side dish, and as dessert, four prunes. The meat course gone, Willie placed the vegetable dish on the empty plate, seized a spoon in lieu of knife and fork, and presto, the side dish was empty, whereupon the prune dish was set in the empty side dish, four deft motions and there were no prunes in the dish the entire feat had been accomplished in six minutes thirty-four and a half seconds setting a new world's record for red-headed farmer boys with one splay foot in the remaining twenty-five and one-half seconds willie walked what seemed to him a mile from his seat to the cashier's desk and at the last instant bumped into a waitress with a trayful of dishes Clutched tightly in Willie's hand was thirty-five cents, and his check with a like amount written upon it. Amid the crash of crockery which followed the collision, Willie slammed check and money upon the cashier's desk and fled, nor did he pause until in the reassuring seclusion of a dark side street. 
There Willie sank upon the curb, alternately cold with fear and hot with shame, weak and panting, and into his heart entered the iron of class hatred, searing it to the core. Fortunately for youth it recuperates rapidly from mortal blows, and so it was that another half-hour found Willie wandering up and down Broadway, but at the far end of the street from the elite restaurant. A motion-picture theater arrested his attention, and presently, parting with one of his two remaining dimes, he entered. The feature of the bill was a detective melodrama. Nothing in the world could have better suited Willie's psychic needs. It recalled his earlier feats of the day, in which he took pardonable pride, and raised him once again to a self-confidence he had not felt since he entered the ever-to-be-hated elite restaurant. The show over, Willie set forth afoot for home. A long walk lay ahead of him. This in itself was bad enough, but what lay at the end of the long walk was infinitely worse, as Willie's father had warned him to return immediately after the inquest, in time for milking, preferably. Before he had gone two blocks from the theater, Willie had concocted at least three tales to account for his tardiness either one of which would have done credit to the imaginative powers of a Ryder Haggard or a Jules Verne. But at the end of the third block he caught a glimpse of something which drove all thoughts of home from his mind, and came but barely short of driving his mind out, too. He was approaching the entrance to an alley. Old trees grew in the parkway at his side. At the street corner, a half-block away, a high-flung arc swung gently from its supporting cables, casting a fair light upon the alley's mouth, and just emerging from behind the nearer fence, Willie Case saw the huge bulk of a bear. Terrified, Willie jumped behind a tree, and then, fearful lest the animal might have caught sight or scent of him, poked his head cautiously around the side of the bowl, just in time to see the figure of a girl come out of the alley behind the bear. Willie recognized her at the first glance. She was the very girl he had seen burying the dead man in the squibs' woods. Instantly Willie Case was transformed again into the shrewd and death-defying sleuth. At a safe distance he followed the girl and the bear through one alley after another until they came out upon the road which leads south from Payson. He was across the road when she joined Bridge and his companions. When they turned toward the old mill he followed them, listening close to the rotting clapboards for any chance remark which might indicate their future plans. He heard them debating the wisdom of remaining where they were for the night or moving on to another location which they had evidently decided upon, but no clue to which they dropped. "'The objection to remaining here,' said Bridge, "'is that we can't make a fire to cook by. It would be too plainly visible from the road.' "'But I can find road by dark.' exclaimed Java. It bad road by day, very much worse by night. Beppo no come cross swamp by night. No, we got stay here till morning. All right, replied Bridge. We can eat some of this canned stuff and have our ham and coffee after we reach camp tomorrow morning, eh? And now that we've gotten through Payson safely, suggested the Oskaloosa kid, let's change back into our own clothes. This disguise makes me feel too conspicuous. Willie Case had heard enough. His query would remain where it was overnight, and a moment later Willie was racing toward Payson and a telephone as fast as his legs would carry him. 
In an old brick structure a hundred yards below the mill, where the lighting machinery of Payson had been installed before the days of the great central power plant a hundred miles away, four men were smoking as they lay stretched upon the floor. "'I tell you, I seen him,' asserted one of the party. "'I followed this bridge guy from town to the mill. He was got up like a jet, but I knew him all right, all right. This scenery of his made me think there was something phony doing or I wouldn't have trailed him, and it's a good thing I'd done it, for he hadn't been there five minutes before along comes the kid and a skirt, and pretty soon another chicken with a calf on her string, or maybe it was a sheep. It was pretty husky looking for a sheep, though, and I sticks around a minute until I hears this here bridge guy call the first skirt Miss Prim. He ceased speaking to note the effect of his words on his hearers. They were electrical. The sky pilot sat up straight and slapped his thigh. Soup Face opened his mouth, letting his pipe fall out onto his lap, setting fire to his ragged trousers. Dirty Eddie voiced a characteristic obscenity. "'So you sees,' went on Columbus Blackie, "'we got a chance to get both the dame and the kid. Two of us can take her to Oakdale and claim the reward her old man's offering, and the other can frisk the kid and—' "'And, and what?' queried the sky pilot. "'There's de swamp handy,' suggested Soupface. "'I was thinking of de swamp,' said Columbus Blackie. "'Eddie and I will return Miss Prim to her bereaved parents,' interrupted the sky pilot. "'You, Blackie, and Soupface can arrange matters with the Oskaloosa kid. I don't care for details. We will all meet in Toledo as soon as possible and split the swag. We ought to make a cleaning on this job, Bowles.' "'You split a mouthful, then,' said Columbus Blackie. They fell to discussing ways and means. "'We'd better wait until they're asleep,' counseled the sky pilot. Two of us can tackle this bridge and hand him the K.O. quick. Eddie and Soupface had better attend to that. Blackie can nab the kid, and I'll annex Miss Abigail Prim, the lady with the calf we don't want. We'll tell her we're officers of the law, and that she'd better duck with her livestock and keep her trap shut if she don't want to get mixed up with a murder trial.' End of section 13.